Thanks for joining us back on our special mini-series on opioids brought to you by the IFF Health and Safety Division. My name is Sarah Burns, and I'm a behavioral health specialist at the IFF. In previous episodes, we've talked about opioids, how opioid addictions are treated, and treatment considerations specifically for firefighters. In this episode, I'm so pleased we're going to hear from a member who has been there and is now living in recovery. Our first guest is Chris Goggin, Lieutenant with Boston Fire and a member of Local 718. Chris, thank you for being here and for being willing to share your story with our members across Canada and the U.S. Thank you for having me, Sarah. So, Chris, tell me a little about yourself. So I'm um, I'm on Boston Fire. I've been on approximately 15 years. I grew up in Charlestown, which is a section of Boston, and um, I, I went into Marine Corps in 1990. You know, with the hopes and dreams of becoming a Boston firefighter was my dream since childhood, and uh, I was able to originally accomplish that in 1997. Awesome! Thanks for telling us a little more about your background, um, Chris. How did you start using opioids? So what happened was in 1997, I had broken my right hand and uh, my fourth metacarsal, and I would I had to have pins put in. And at the time, I you know I you know I was drinking and, and doing other substances, and um, you know and and when I after the surgery, they prescribed me Percocets, and um, I just kind of you know fell in love with the feeling that they gave me. And what was that addiction like for you? What impacts did it have on your life? It, had a, it actually had a huge impact on my life, Sarah. Um, so what happened was in 1998, I was about 11 months on the Boston Fire, and, and I ended up losing my job through drug addiction, through uh, the opiate uh, epidemic, and um, and other substances. And, and it, it, from there, my life just kind of spiraled out of control, which... Um, lasted probably four or five years I was on the opiates you know it was a daily daily um use you know in my life it just it just controlled every every second of my day you had accomplished your childhood dream you became a firefighter with Boston Fire and then after 11 months while you were on probation you lost your job I did I lost it uh, I'd say approximately 11 months um, I, I ended up taking a drug test because I, so to back up a little bit, I actually broke my hand a second time um, and had pins put back in within that 11 months on the fire department and then more Percocets. And then what happened was I was supposed to start a, a drill class to become a firefighter. And uh, they had me at headquarters at the time. And uh, I ended up getting called in to take a drug test and I, and I sealed it. And um it was probably one of the hottest days of my life, you know, have, you know, having to go home and tell my parents at the time I lived at home and, uh, it just explained to them. And I, and I lived in a small community of all firefighters and cops and it was really embarrassing, shameful. And, um, but it, it, it's, it's part of my story. And, uh, you know, out down the road, I'll tell you, it was probably one of the best things that happened to me as a person because it changed my life. Mm-hmm. So after that drug test and losing your job, what did you do for the next couple of years? What was that like? So what, ha what, what happened was, so I took an, another civil service test um, 
actually before I got on the fire department and, and I ended up getting a card three months after I resigned uh, to become a, a custodian with the Boston public schools. And so I became a, a custodian in the schools um, up until 2005, which is when I got back on the Boston fire. So it sounds like uh, there were, there were some things that must've happened in between that time that you lost your job and then you got your job back. So what led to you getting help for the addiction? I always wanted more out of life, and and um, you know it was very humbling. Not not to, to discourage anyone that's a custodian or anything like that. But my whole life, I just wanted to be a Boston firefighter since I was a kid. I think a big part of it was my dad. He used to, you know, he always wanted to be a firefighter. He was in Vietnam, and you know, he never got on. But you know, we always had scanners in the house and. And it's just something that I was always drawn to. And so what happened to me was I was trying to get sober for years. I couldn't stay stopped. I just couldn't. Uh, I kept, I went to detox probably two or three times. And then what would happen was I would go back and hang out on the corner with my old friends. And I just couldn't, you know, get away from, uh, you know, just hanging out with my old friends and, and um so what what eventually ended up happening is I, I would tell anyone that would listen, I'm going to get my job back at the fire department. And, and um, so what happened for me was it was, which to back up earlier when I said, you know, in the long run, it was the best thing that ha- ever happened to me. It was because when 9-11 happened, um, it just actually showed me how precious life was. And I was trying to stay stopped. I couldn't stop using and. You know, my mom and dad were in Ireland for 9-11, and they were stuck over there for like three weeks. And I just, it was like a three-week period of just using and using. And, and um, you know, I was still using opiates, but it wasn't fun anymore. You know, I was miserable. I was sad. And one day I was home on the couch watching um, CNN or one of the news channels. And you know, it was the first time I'd seen the stats, 2,977 people died on 9-11 going to work. And um, it just hit me all of a sudden. I started crying and I got on my knees and, and, and uh, probably for the, one of the first times in my life. And I just cried out to God and I said, God, I can't do this anymore. And what hit me was that all them people went to work that day and they didn't know they were going to die. You know, and, and here I was just throwing my life away and I couldn't stop it. it what it did, it would actually show me how precious life really was. You know, that day that for everybody, it is really a day at a time. It's not just for the addict. It's for every person. And and it was kind of an eye opener for me. And, and I had a lot of fear of calling uh, the fire department because it was so long, but they had an incredible employees assistance program. and. Um, I remember it was a Sunday, and and I remember saying to myself, I was uh, as I was praying, God help me to feel this way tomorrow morning, so I can have the courage and strength to call the employees assistance program and ask for help. And I had woke up the next day, and I still felt the same. And I just called, and 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 I thought they were going to say, we can't help you. It's been four or five years since you were gone, and they didn't say that. They said, where have you been? We'd love to help you, and they kind of guided me on this. Uh, journey I've been on and told me the steps to take. And I basically had to just, you know, throw my hands up in the air and just say, I'll do whatever you need me to do. Because up to that point, you know, I was trying to do it on my own. I'd go to AA, I'd go to church, but I just wouldn't listen. I kept trying to control it and do it my way. And it just didn't work. Mm -hmm. 
Do you remember who you first talked to when you called the EAP program that day? I do. It, 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 it's a gentleman named um, John Dorsey, who's no longer with us. He's since passed. He was an amazing man. And what, what happened with that phone call? You know, it sounds like they welcomed you back with open arms and were willing to help. Um, you know, what happened after you made that phone call? What happened? Tell me, you know, it's like a movie. Tell me, you know, you made a phone call and then what happened? So I, like I said, when I originally called and John answered and, you know, he didn't judge me. He didn't say, you're no longer a firefighter. We can't help you. You know, he said, he said, uh, he did say, he goes, you know, we've been waiting for you to call. And then uh, he told me to go to a detox that he had set up, which is it's called, um, I went to McLean's hospital. And, and then, you know, when I was there, I had to call him back after like three or four days until we can set up the next step of my recovery, which he, he suggested that I go to a halfway house. And um, you know, that's something that I never, you know, took the suggestion to do. I just would go to detox and, and I wouldn't go on to further treatment. And uh, so when I was in the detox and he suggested the house, to, I, I was to go to what's called the South Shore House. And um, the guys that were in detox were with me. Were, they said, I, I wouldn't go there. That's a really hard house. And at the, at the time, you know, all I could think of was, I just don't want to use anymore is it it can't be hotter than paris island was i went from boot camp in paris island uh, i just i just was willing to do anything he he suggested that i should do and he didn't tell me i needed to do it it was his suggestion and you know i just i i did everything he he said and that's when i truly believe i got this is when i started listening so you you put in a lot of work you followed the uh the guidance of john from the eap and you mentioned that you got your job back. How did all that happen? So what happened was I, I was probably two or three years sober at the time. And, um, and at the time, no one has ever gotten a job back that was on probation in the history of the fire department. And so I still had a burning desire inside to be a firefighter. And, and um, at the time, you know, I was probably two, two to three years sober, and um, I was I was married. I had an amazing wife and two 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 children, and um, my life was really really good. Even at being a custodian, I, like it was great. Like I my, I was really starting to grow in my life, and um, so. But I still had this desire to be a firefighter, and so I ended up taking what I did was I took the test again because I had no union protection because. I was on probation, so I, I just said, no, I'm going to go through the process again and see what they say. And um, I remember thinking, like, um, what do I have to lose? And so I ended up passing the test, and I got a card in the mail to respond to, you know, to be a firefighter again. And, uh, you know, I had met a, a few guys in my life that, that you know, put me in contact with the chief of personnel at the time. And I went in and... Um, you know, I sat down with a gentleman who, who was in charge of personnel and he he asked me, he said, what are you looking for? And I said, and I just said, sir, I said, I'm 32 years old. I said, my life is great. I said, I have a beautiful son and daughter and, and a wife. I said, I've been told for three years. I have a great job. I goes, but I don't want to wait till I'm 40 years old and, and um, regret not trying to get back on. I still have a desire to be a firefighter. It's the only thing I ever wanted to do in my life. And I... Uh, he looked at me and he said, do you know Willie Oster guy? And I said, I do. He goes, "What? this is what I want you to do. I want you to go down there and talk to him and do everything that man tells you to do. 
and I just went down and, and, and I did it. Whatever he said to do, I did it 110%. Usually what they do is when you're coming out of drill school, they'll test you twice in drill school, and then they'll test you. They think, I'm sorry, twice in drill school, and then it should be over. But what ended up happening in Chris's case is Chris was actually off. He broke his arm or his whatever, his wrist up. And they missed him. They forgot all about him. And about three months later, they brought his name up, and he tested, and he tested positive. And, you know, the first year, they can do whatever they want. So he was terminated. But, you know, he, uh, he did everything that was asked of him. He was given an, an opportunity to come back. Well, Chris was doing the right thing. You know, so why wouldn't he be given an opportunity? I sure as hell aren't going to hire somebody that is doing the wrong thing. You know, he, he was a good, solid firefighter like Brian was, like Pat Hayes was, respected in the field. You know, they were just good examples of people that got their act together. That was Lieutenant Willie Ostagai from the Boston Fire EAP. Next, Chris explains how he got back on track. You know, next thing I know, I was getting back on the job when they called, you know, and it was, it, it, it just, you know, I remember like praying and, and um, you know, I, at, at the time I was reading a lot of books on, on um, you know, spiritual books and, and, and you know, and I, it, there was a book called The Purpose Driven Life and I knew there was a purpose for my life and, um, you know, I would pray and all of a sudden a fire truck would drive by with its lights on and it just, you know, I would just be, it was just everything that I seen was, was don't give up, don't give up on your goals and dreams. And, um, and, and if he told me, you know, you can't get on the fight bomb, and I would have been okay with that. Cause that's where I was in my life. Yeah, like I was, I, I know I was going to be okay as long as I didn't do opiates again or drink and drug. And it, it's just been an amazing journey with what the EAP did to help me. And, um, the guys that had worked down there at the time were just amazing in guiding me. Wow. It's a pretty incredible story, Chris, that you were the first member of the Boston Fire Department on probation to lose their job ever to then get it back. So that's the amazing thing. And since that, there's been like 13 other firefighters that have gotten back. And, the, and, and if you were to say that, like, we're, I believe the oldest fire department in the country. And why was I chosen to be the guy? It's basically impossible. It's impossible odds. Up to that point, there was no odds. It was zero. And, and it just, it, it's, you know, there lies my faith in God that he had, he had a plan in, for me in my life. And um, I remember thinking, you know, my whole life, I just wanted to help people and, and, and to be a firefighter. I think that's what part of part of what has drawn me to that profession. I remember thinking, all right, if I didn't get my drawback, I'd love to be a nurse just because you're out there helping people. But what I didn't realize is you can't help others until you help yourself. In my whole life, I was a people pleaser trying to help everyone, but I couldn't take care of myself. I couldn't take suggestions. And finally, when I surrendered and just threw my hands up and the members of the EAP and other members and Alcoholics Anonymous and members at church, all these people, I, I was willing to, to take suggestions from and start this amazing journey that I've been on. So, Chris, how long have you been sober now? 
I got sold because of 9-11 when I seen that uh, the numbers, 2,977 people. So since that was actually October 30th of 2001, when I seen that clip on the news and, and I've been sober since then. So it's coming up in 19 years. And again, it's, you know, the it, it's sometimes it's, I remember going, I went to a church in, in, in Boston called Art Street and, you know, and I remember thinking how, in, how come in the worst, one of the worst days in American history was one of the best days of my life. You know, And, and um, there was a, there's a picture of 9-11 of the steel girder shaped like a cross. And I had a picture of that because someone had sent it to me. And, and um, as I was talking to the priest, he had said to me, he said, Chris, no matter how bad things are, God will always let you know it's going to be okay. You know, and that was that picture of that, that cross. Uh, so 19 years later, Chris, what types of things do you do now to maintain your recovery? So what what I do to re, um, maintain my recovery is um, I have never missed a day. One day I missed I, of getting on my knees um, since that day. I had my hip replaced two years ago and, and the first night in hospital, I didn't do it. But after the next day, I, I was able to do it. And um, it, it just something that has worked for me is just the first thought of my day instead of how am I going to get an opiate today instead it's rolling out of bed and getting on my knees and asking God for guidance and asking them to keep me away from a drink and a drug and that's how I start my day and then I read you know I, I read different spiritual books and and um and uh I you know I go to meetings and and uh, and uh, I also incorporated like Bible studies today. I do um, since the journey. You know, it, it seems like it grows and grows. And, that, and, and, and most of all, um, what I do is is I act. I love you know I love dealing with people that are hurt and then people that need help. And um, I think being sober, what it does, it gives you a lot of empathy. And um, you know, just just sometimes it's just being there for someone to, to talk to. Mm-hmm. So I know you got sober while you were not on the fire department. Um, so, you know, this question is a little more broad. What do you think are some of the challenges for our members in asking for help? I think a big part is just giving up control. Like I stated, when I finally got it was when, you know, I threw my hands up and, and just said, I can't do this alone anymore. And, and um, you know, a lot of times it's denial. People don't realize how bad the issue is. Um, a lot of times people want to get sober and, and they try to do it on their own in, in the department. And, um, you know, they think they can stay stopped. And, and, and what happens is is, is it, it's really hard to for them to stay sober if they don't have the tools that they acquire along the way in recovery. So they'll try to do it for a certain amount of time. And then, um, you know, it could be a, issues at home. It could be issues with a boss. It could be it could be the littlest thing that could set them off. And, and if they don't have the tools to stay sober, they run back to that place that that takes them out of themselves, and which is the opiates or, or other substances. Chris, when you were telling part of your story, you mentioned that when you were trying to get your job back, you went in and met with uh, the head of personnel. And that person told you to 
talk to Willie Astagai and do anything that Willie said. Um, tell me about Willie. What's he like? Willie is, he's an amazing man. He's, um, he is Boston. Um, he, he's a larger than life character who, you know, I've been, I was actually the privilege to be the last guy he picked to work at the AP before he retired. And, um, his whole life is recovery and helping other people. Um, it, it's just amazing. Um, and, and I was blessed to, to get to watch him and still get to watch him. Uh, just continuously, all he wants to do is help the person that's addicted to drugs and alcohol. And um, I mean, he has a high school named after him here. He, he's he's an icon on the Boston Fire, and I'm sure across the country. Um, and he's just he has so much wisdom and experience. It, and um, he's just an amazing, amazing person. Into who is constantly, like I said, just, just out there helping people to this day. Mm -hmm. And what's your relationship like with Willie? How did he help you? So his name on the job is just gone in so much respect. And so, you know, when I went to Willie and I was full of fear, you know, again, after this time in my life, like life, no one had ever gotten the job act that was on probation. And uh, we had a gentleman named, John Dorsey, who I mentioned earlier, he, he, I would ask, Hey, John, you think I'd get my job back? And he'd point to the sky and be like, it's up to God. And I would say, Hey, Willie, a day later, you think I'll get my job back? And Willie would be like, I don't see it being a problem. And he had so much of an influence on this job because people really respected him because he's been doing this for, I mean, 40, 50 years. He's just all he's ever done is help people. And it just, since, I want to say, I think 25, 30 guys, if not more, he's gotten back on the fight department with their jobs back. And I would say 25 to 30, probably 20, 22 success rate stories where they've stayed sober. And, and when I was, you know, working with the AP, we had other unions, the airlines, and just across the state of Massachusetts used to just come in. And um, asked Willie for advice because he basically started this program from the ground up and built an amazing program where if guys on the Boston Fire are struggling, you can voluntarily come forward and, and uh, you know, they provide two meetings a week at the EAP unit and um, for a year straight. You know, and you can come in and it's just firefighters from across Massachusetts that also a lot of towns and municipalities across Massachusetts will send their members to Boston Fire because of the success rate that they've had. And if they have a member struggling, they'll, on Mondays and Thursdays, they have AA meetings and um, you get a lot of guys that have went through in the past that still come in, in the, like I said, other departments. And it was all started under Willie. He knew what was important to keep the guy sober. He he not only put it together, he, he still he's active in his own life, and he he lives. He he just doesn't preach. He also lives the way he preaches. He just he's a shining example, and um, he's just he's just an amazing person. So, Chris, you've shared so much of your story with us today. What haven't I asked about uh, that you think is important? Just how do I stay sober? Like we covered that. Um, I think a big part of 
what I love about being in the EAP, you know, when I, when I was first went to the EAP, you know, in Boston, we actually have a van that goes to the firehouses and we have random drug and alcohol tests, you know, and so I had a, I ended up getting promoted to Lieutenant when I was in the EAP and I had to go back to the firehouse and, and, um, you know, you, you, you kind of looked at a little, there's a trust issue, you know, um, and then for me, what has been really important is, is, and you kind of asked it early, how, how do you approach people in the firehouse or most people want to talk to someone, they just don't know who they can trust, you know? And, and for me, it's about just going in there and going in the firehouse, my firehouse or whatever firehouse I'm working in at the time and just building that trust with guys that are struggling. I don't, and I'm probably, I don't know if I'm right by saying this, but I don't look at people that are struggling like they're firefighters. I, I just look at them like they're just hurting people and they need help. And it helps me be able to help them um, because a lot of people had a lot of patience with me when I got sober. And um, it's not about letting someone being put in a, a position where they can hurt the unit or the person. It, it's about, um, of course, safety, making sure it's a safe environment, but also um, getting sober as a process. And how can I make it so this person trusts me and, and we can try to get them some help? And, and it's, it's, it's what's worked for me. Um, it, it's, it seems, I mean, and Brian and Willie and all these guys that have came before me that helped me, it, it's, it's um, people trust you because of how you treat them. And, and the big part is just for me is having empathy in the firehouse. And I actually really, when I was asked by Willie to go to the AP, I felt like I owed it to the department. I didn't get on the job thinking, oh, I want to be an EAP counselor. It wasn't on my bucket list. <laughs> when, when, when Willie had asked me, you know, would you like to come down to the AP? I, I remember thinking it, it's because I, I I held Willie to such high esteem. It was, I, I remember thinking it's like working, you know, you, you get picked to play the Green Monster at Fenway Park. It was Ted Williams, Kai Skramsky. And in this case, it was Willie Oscar, John Dorsey, Brian Me. You know, these are the guys that I get to do this with. And, and I felt like I owed it to the job because, again, I, most guys don't get this job once, never mind twice. You know, I got it twice and I'm very blessed. I know there's a better way out. And, and it just uh, so I, I really, you know, I, I, I just love, you know, the, the firehouse environment. Um, you know, it's a good unit, but but it, it's um Trust is a big thing, and it's just about gaining trust and and then going from there. Chris, what would you like to say to members who are listening to this podcast? Maybe they're using opioids and aren't sure how to stop, or even if they they can stop. Um, or maybe we have listeners who are early on in their recovery. What's your message to them? Uh, my message would be just. Um, you know, surround yourself with like-minded people, people that that have done this before yourself or myself. Um, you know, one of the biggest, hardest things to do is, is is to let other people in your life and trust other people. 
Um, when I first got sober, I had two gentlemen. You know, just came up to me at a meeting, and, and um, I had low self-esteem. I, I was like, what do these guys want? And, and it was very hard to open myself up and, and let other people in. And um, I kind of just had to hop in their pocket for the first couple of years and, and, and basically follow them around and, um, you know, surrendering. And, um, you know, it, it also talks about, you know, going back to – you know, like, like your childhood and, and, and whatever, like you did, say spiritual practices growing up, praying to God, you know, start there. Chris, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast and for sharing your story with us and all of our members across the U S and Canada. Um, it's my hope. And I think we share this hope, um, that by telling more stories of recovery, we can show that it's possible and that help is out there. Uh, I just thank you, Sarah, for uh, inviting me on. It's a, it's a definitely a very important uh, subject. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of help out there, and um, you know it's a, like a, a, again, it, it was it's an honor to be able to do this. And uh, I know how much of a struggle it is to get sober. It took me a long time to surrender. Um, if I could just leave with this, is is just you know to help other people, which we are pretty much born to do. You got to help yourself for us. And, um, you know, I'm glad I realized that. And uh, I really appreciate you having me on and being able to share my story. Thank you. To access the other videos and podcasts in this series, visit opioidepidemic.iff.org. Content was supported by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences of the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Energy under award number uh 4 e S009759. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Energy.